0: How's Israel. You know, you want to talk about weather. You know, you do.
1: Yeah. No, no, no. Actually, I wasn't thinking about the weather this time. I was passing by a house just earlier today that had a enormous placard saying this is Ben Gvir time and Ben Gvir. to listeners who might remember that I talked about in my uh, dispatch podcast that um, we we plugged previously about the end we which we did discuss with Eli Lake a little bit is the the proto fascist um, party leader that got outsized um, influence in the past election. And I don't know, it's just weird. It's not It's not like you're seeing things immediately change. The government didn't even go into power, but there is this undercurrent. And undercurrents could be nothing. Undercurrents could be my own brain interpreting things that don't really exist. People who would have voted for him 10 years ago voted for him today, and nothing really changed drastically. But on the other hand, you also hear a lot of conversations, political conversations, I mean, about implementing new um, Jewish Sharia law <laughs> and certain things, um, blocking businesses on the Sabbath, being being uh, introducing more um, religious moralistic dimensions into supervision of education, and those things just creep the fuck out of me. Especially considering that we are in a political moment, I think internationally or at least Westernly, where there there's just a ton of nostalgia for religious, I shouldn't say indoctrination so much as uh coercion. People are craving coercion as we've discussed several times. People want that authoritative moral voice to submit to because they think their lives are empty without it. It's mm-hmm. just weird. They're looking you for
0: strict daddies to put them in line. looking
1: for strict daddies with God's slappy rod. Uh-huh. It's just weird. Um, I, I don't know. I don't and know. And is,
0: do. uh, is the gravel in your voice... Because of your uh, world wariness of the political climate, or is it because of all the shouting you did at the World Cup match yesterday?
1: <laughs> I, I did do some shouting, which is very unlike me. I do not watch sports, but it was a <laughs> there was a delicious game. Um, it was a no, fucking good match. Yeah, it was a good match. No, my my raspiness is neither. As I, I, I just my body decided, having moved here, that now now it has an internal biological clock that wakes up at six thirty, no matter what. Um, and I did. I did not go to sleep intending to wake up at six thirty, and hence the gravel.
0: Got it. Gravel. I don't think you're groveling quite yet. It's a <laughs> gravelly tone. I think it's well suited to the end of the year wrap up. Just get that real feel of slogging through the year, exhaustion, right in your, right in your voice.
1: No, yeah, groveling is not. <laughs> graveling goes back to what we were talking about with God's cropping rod, rod, cropping rod? <laughs> yes. riding, riding crop, God's riding crop.
0: Yeah. Yeah, cropping rod sounds very sexual, but yeah. so too can be a riding crop. But anyway, I'm going to lead you into this conversation, Dom, since you are uh uns- underslept and uh, totally uh, out of character. Totally oh. out of character. Um, but I thought we should have an end-of-the-year discussion, muse upon the three episodes we enjoyed most from the year and why. Mm-hmm. I have guessed what I think yours are. I'd be curious if you know what so. mine are, and then we can, uh, and then we can discuss them. Hopefully, there's hopefully we don't diverge too much, and we don't have to have six conversations.
1: Oh, yeah. Let's we'll let's see. just reframe it from the conversations we enjoyed the most because I think there are just too many parameters that this could go. Let's mm. say the, the one that like...
0: The ones that stuck with us. In a,
1: in a, in a u- unique way. Um, I'm overthinking it already. Okay. We're going to keep it fun just for the new year. But I, I, I agreed with Vanessa that sometimes we need to reflect. This is what the new <laughs> letters are for, sure. But also, it's fun to do it kind of in person, except not
0: Speaking of fun reflections, so I listened to a bunch of our episodes from the year, which you know we we never do. We don't listen back, I, and I, I have to compliment to you. You you make our introductory banter. You make us sound kind of fun
1: yeah <laughs> yes. it's like way
0: funner than real life right
1: well no significantly less tired yes that's what that's what i get paid for
0: but which you uh, don't I, get paid for but if you did not, you not would. That certain bits,
1: but yes uh yes correct um but for other pods yeah but okay so let's get started so what do you want me to guess first i want to guess i want to guess first um no 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 i take it back you go first <laughs>
0: Okay. All right. I think you're going to choose. Have you already figured it out in your mind so that I don't sway your opinion? Mm.
1: Okay. Give me a second. Um, okay. Yeah. Write this it one, down. This category for sure. Um, we had some some good conversations. I really like a lot of these conversations. I don't know. It's difficult to decide. Um, okay. So there are two categories already that I recognize. It's kind of cheating, but I'm going to put at least two In each category. So it's like it's actually the three that are five.
0: Interesting. Okay. So I predicted that you would choose to talk about today Uh, Mark Leela, Deshaun Chakrabarty, and what was my third one? What was my third one? What was my third one? Yasha Monk.
1: Damn. Good job. Wow. Did I get all three? The only thing that you missed for me... I mean, again, it's cheating <laughs> on my end because I, I i added more. But those are the three types that I have. Okay, so let's start with that. Mark represents...
0: You should guess what mine are first. Okay, yes. I
1: think Mark Lele is one of yours. I'm going to say... I'm going to say Elay Lake because I think it amused you in a way that was different for you. So I'm going to go like probably Vishon still. Um... And maybe the thing is that I can't decide between Mark Leela and David French because of the kind of like touching on the friendship issue. So just to go different, I'm gonna go David French, Elay Lake, and Vishon.
0: Okay, got one out of three.
1: Shit. Um so Mark Leela instead of David French, <laughs> do I get that one?
0: That's correct. Mark Leela instead oh, yeah, of David yeah. French. I, I,
1: knew, I, I knew it was gonna be Mark Leela. It has to be Mark Leela. It so was Mark, that was just
0: a great conversation. And it was in person, too, which I always like. Right. There was Vashon, Mm-hmm. So that was your right one.
1: So it's one and a half, um, I'm going to call and,
0: it. Fine, fair enough. And then the third one was actually Christine Rosen.
1: Really? So, okay. So the thing, literally what I was thinking when I was thinking about categories, the two categories that I, I had to bundle um, a few conversations into were, there was the topical, the two that I was considering was Eli and Christine. And I almost saw it as part of the same conversation, maybe because they are both in the commentary magazine sphere and and then on the other side, there is the um there is a more cultural malaise the loneliness and the uh, search for meaning and the ways that that radicalizes society, which is David French and Mark Leela so i I'm giving myself like a tenth of a point for calling Eli <laughs> because I saw it, I see it in the same bucket.
0: Well, part of the reason why I liked the conversation with Christine, which we'll get into, is just how varied it was, which is mm. very similar to how the conversation uh, right. with Eli was. But yeah, did you want to start with Mark Leela then?
1: Yeah, I think the reason that both of us landed on Mark Leela is that it really laid the groundwork, I think, of where we are intellectually in in what guides us at, in uncertain things. It got into not just the surface level dramas and, and conflicts that we sometimes seek commentary on, but really got into some of the m- fundamental movements, cultural and, and, and emotional movements that really undergird all of that and I don't know if it's exactly call it philosophical or sociological undulations but it got to that and and I think that's something that both of us felt going out of that conversation He was able to really grasp and and explore and dissect deeper currents that we were just starting to tease out in our first conversation with Tom Holland low those many years ago and
0: Tom Persico And Tomar Persico, correct. It's also interesting that we talked to Mark at the beginning of the year because he is a bit of a bridge interview in a way. He does kind of bring the through lines from year Mm. one into year two of uncertain things. And I just appreciated, I mean, when you think about like back to our very first interviews with Tomar Persico, a lot of the questions were like, how do we find a moral compass in a time when our moral compasses aren't given to us anymore? And for for me, what stood out from our conversation with Mark is that we had... Three questions that we could literally have like a million podcasts on each of these questions. And they're still just kind of sticking with me, which is how much morality is enough? What's the good of morality? Which is a question that seems a little out of favor these days, but I think is still worth talking about. Um, and when can we askew morality?
1: Right. Do you say mm-hmm. askew, not chew
0: Oh, maybe it's shoe. I don't know. Askew feels right.
1: <laughs> um, I, I, I like the crunchiness of a shoe. When you say the good, we're talking about the the goal, the ultimate, good, the big G good that is at at the um, heart of it of a moral system. How to define that? How to seek it out? And the the first question I think is even more interesting because I'd say that almost all of philosophy is in some way or another looking at the question of the good. Like, like you have early you have some philosophy,
0: you? yes. Not necessarily kind of the more contemporary flavors of philosophy, right? No, I think they still. Because I think when I'm thinking of good, it's like what, what, what allows you to have a good life right? Like that's, I think that's how he was defining it.
1: Right. No, but the good, but th- then the good is, what is the focus of the good? Is the good of the individual, the good of the social life is the the, the good of um, human existence. I think those questions around what is the the locus of good and, and then how to define it are the, the bread and butter of uh, philosophy, even not political or moral philosophy. Cause I think even when you're looking at questions about nature and truth and um, beauty, the the elements of the good are defining the good is either explicit or implicit in the um, philosophical work. The thing that was to me more um, radical and satisfying in the way that Mark approached it is the question of delimiting just how much moral activity do you even want in society? How much, how much preoccupation in, um, questions of the good and of, or righteousness or whatever version of, um, applied morality can or should society actually, um, encourage. So I think in that case, um, when he's talking about circumscribing morality, we're talking about morality as a group project, as a social project, because you can still discuss the question of the good outside of society and just man to themselves or or man to nature or man to his vision of the infinite or the finite for that matter. But either way, working around these problems is is both... I think, like stimulating and in, 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 a, in a way that I didn't expect in coming into this conversation. And second, incredibly pertinent to, and this is where the Tom Holland thing comes in, incredibly pertinent to a time where you're, we, I, am um, trying to uh, uh, or find myself in need of justifying the liberal system, both to you and to um, potentially some of our listeners, definitely some of our guests, and certainly some of our non-guests who are, or, or are, I, I would love to talk to, about are ideologically um, far away from us. And the I think the core justification of the liberal system is exactly that it um, sets out to carve out space for the individual that is outside of the concern of the social good,
0: Yes. And Mark spent a lot of time talking about the your individual realm of curiosity and allowing that to be divorced from morality. Giving yourself permission in your interests, in your art that you consume, whatever, for it to be maybe not necessarily morally aligned with you. And that's actually healthy and a good practice. Um, and you can... Con- Prescribe morality within maybe your more political life, which well, she drew pretty sharp divisions um, right. between uh, the personal and the political, which is also kind of interesting because, again, that's kind of not oh, very, like, de rigueur these days.
1: Right. And since the, the 60s ruined that. Um, the, yeah. <laughs> I remember a line that I I mean my Actually, I wonder if I could find it. I could probably pull it out um, on our copy here. But um, a line from Hitch – that me and my mom kept rediscovering and resharing between each other he describes the his first encounter with the phrase the personal is the political and he's more of a i i don't like where this is going this is this is lazy this is not a good way to to, to think academically philosophically morally and politically um, but it's funny because
0: even as we acknowledge that a lot of what is personal is political i think there's one thing to acknowledge that infiltration it's another thing to live your life with that awareness and have every individual behavior defined by its political right. implication it's like not a very healthy way to live your life it's not
1: just seeing it defined by the political implication there's also there is a an assumption that every action has political implication has political value yeah. and Important yeah and i think that's a problem that that distorts your let's not even call it distort cuz to call it distort is judgmental but it builds a new way to see the world that diminishes your ability to exist within yourself because now everything that you do is um seen as part of the the uh the what's the what's the word for the thing that you weave you have a weaving thing you spin the thing and you the weave. spinning wheel no the spinning wheel is the the, the wheel that spins but <laughs> the thing that gets woven together is <laughs> the loom uh, to, the loom okay no it's cool. got to be a loom i i am going to take your word for it is it every action that you <laughs> every personal action that you take is only understandable within the loom of social politics now as um, somebody who comes from the uh, Constructivist school of linguistics, uh, which is part of the reasons that I am uh, a big Noam Chomsky protagonist.
0: Uh, just side note: I would like us to return to Noam Chomsky and have sound effects because this is something I noticed for listening to our our episodes many times. We have promised it and have not delivered, and we I have want not this to be on a, Noam a future Chomsky, endeavor.
1: Um, ominous theme. But yeah, exactly. I, I think but one of the reasons that I find myself antagonistic to Noam Chomsky is from the constructivist or structuralist school of linguistics. And the first idea that launched the school is understanding language as something that doesn't exist separate from the entire context. Um, white can only mean white in contrast to black, big only in contrast to small. Everything is contrasted and nothing exists in isolation. So as somebody who buys into the idea that, that you can't really discuss language this way, and language is really the thing through which we build our our external relations as humans, the jump into everything is political, as in every action that you make exists within this bigger tapestry of of social interactions is a very small jump to make. But, but that's, you know, that's just philosophical bullshit at this point, because obviously what you're when right. you're looking at it at the scale of people, you can't really talk about it in that like abstraction in the same way that you do when you're thinking about language, you have to think of it as we have individuals interacting, and their actions do have some cumulative value as a bigger group, and as a society, and as a political system. But to forgo the privacy of the individual in that story is a, a step too far. Not just because we don't really think in those terms. We don't really think of ourselves as pieces of one big whole. That's not the way our brains think. That's not the way we understand ourselves. And that's not the way that we understand society, no matter how much we try to do it this way, to, to perceive it this way. But the other side of this problem is that, and this is where we are today, when you forgo this right to preserve the, the, the individuation and the liberal space um, and the idea of autonomy, you inevitably turn to a, a totalitarian system because that's the other side of that it's a system that everything is submerged into the whole and into the interests of the whole and into the 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 big mm. g good and then you have no recourse you have no way to be in dialogue with that because you're either you you are either in service of it or you're defying against it right I will say that my mom listening on the other <laughs> side of the room.
0: Yes, live commentary. No, 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 no
1: she texted me the quote, the pitch 22 quote. And I'll, I'll just read it and then we can decide if we want to include it. As 1968 began to ebb into 1969, however, and as anticlimax began to become a real world word in my lexicon, because at the time he saw himself as a socialist revolutionary, Mm. Um, the, a true believer in in the movements uh, around the world in Cuba and elsewhere anti-Western um, transitions, um, is saw himself as a revolutionary. People began to intone the words, the personal is the political. At the instant I first heard this deadly expression, I knew as one does from the utterance of any sinister bullshit that it was, cliches are arguably forgiven here, very bad news. From now on, it would be enough to be a member of a sex or gender or epidermal subdivision or even erotic preference to qualify as a revolutionary. In order to begin a speech or ask a question from the floor, all that would be necessary by way of preface would be the words speaking as a.
0: Wow. What year did he write that?
1: Uh, I think 2008, maybe 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, And this could follow any self-loving description. I will have to say this much for the old hard left. We earned our claim to speak and intervene by right of experience and sacrifice and work. It would never have done for any of us to stand up and say that our sex or sexuality or pigmentation or disability were qualifications in themselves. There are many ways dating the moment when the left lost, or I would prefer to say discarded its moral advantage. But this was the first time that I was to see the sellout conducted so cheaply. It's a good quote. Yep, I talked about the way that this philosophy has a totalizing effect that I don't like. He points out that it also makes you lazy. And I think this also goes to what Mark Leela was talking about, mm. that buying into this mode of seeing the world as being being actioned through your mere existence, that political action is earned by just existing as a certain identity group, then you're no longer obligated to, to, A, think critically on what you're trying to achieve, and second, to act in order to achieve that. It waters down what political means.
0: Mm. And what, what you are morally obligated to do if you want to have political change. Right. <laughs> okay, on to Yasha. To Yasha. Uh, why did Yasha make your top three?
1: Well, you tell me. You guessed it.
0: I mean, one of the reasons why is because you got to test out your secret sauce question, which you had been workshopping quite a bit.
1: I mean, to be fair, it's Yasha's work that really sealed it in my mind. And
0: just in case people forgot, the secret sauce question is, is the secret sauce of group cohesion actually oppression?
1: Not just cohesion, group meaning and and, and the the value of Mm. a bond within a group, the thing that we keep lamenting the loss of in the atomized society of modern-day America or modern-day West— the secret sauce is coercion. Um, can you have group commitments in a meaningful way, in a way that exerts people to to devote themselves to the group and to derive real meaning from their connection to that group without coercion, without a, a part of their brain mm-hmm. being afraid to leave? Um, the, the reason that it started, I don't know, congealing by reading Yasha's book, is that in his text, Yasha is very much a warrior for classical liberalism and liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. So his agenda in his book is to defend a liberal diverse society that enables uh, people to easily leave their groups, which he sees, sees as one of the duties of a liberal democracy, which means that the role of the state, of the government, to ensure that the individual has the freedom to exit any association that he finds himself into, whether Mm -hmm. by birth or voluntary association, but then decides to leave, call it a cult, call it a religion, whatever it is, the the state must secure their freedom to join and exit as they please. And he took that for granted. And he uh, insisted both in the book and in the interview, that providing that security does not erode the value of the association in any way. His mind, mm-hmm. in fact, associations that have an element of coercion are are cheaper and not something that we should even respect. But as I was reading it, and as he was making his most um, thought out and articulate case for it, I was just not convinced. I was, in fact, being convinced further and further that maybe not maybe really like maybe once you make it a free for all where the state guarantees that you can just leave any group and redefine yourself in 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 any which way maybe in that at that moment you you no longer see the group as something as gluey as as sticky as you would have otherwise and in that you're getting a, a much more supine version of commitment. And that, in part, leads to a sense of adriftness and loneliness in the, again, a esque bowling alone hyper-individualized society.
0: But this is a diagnosis for someone who isn't part of a strongly cohesive group within a liberal democracy, right? Because I think you made the point within the conversation that if you're in an, say, Orthodox Jewish community within New York, it's not easy to leave, even within the framework of right. the Amer- America's liberal democracy, where it's you're allowed to leave, but you don't often.
1: Right. I don't remember where Yasha himself stands on this, but this is definitely an instinct that exists among um, I'd say classically liberal, and, and to some extent in me as well, that th- It's not okay that the the community can apply so much pressure on you that you are terrified of leaving. The state should be involved in to some extent to prevent or to offset in order to respect the wishes of the individual to be in relationship to the group as they see fit.
0: For me, the thing that stood out from the conversation with Yasha was actually I asked him a question, kind of like what what is it about diverse democracies that are essentially stronger democracies? And he corrected me, which was interesting because I, I I assumed that that was the premise of of his argument. And he said, no, actually, you know, I I could absolutely see that more homogeneous democracies are, are stronger, but the fact is the worms are out of the can on that one for the vast majority of democracies around the world. Like, And if you want to put the worms back in the can, that's a little genocide and a little scary. <laughs> so let's assume that we don't want that state of affairs just for the sake of having a stronger democracy. So then the question becomes... Even if the, if homogeneous democracies are safer, more stapler, let us assume that in this day and age, given the diversity of most of our uh, existing democracies, we have to figure out how to make diverse democracies just as st- strong and stable.
1: The worms uh, that you're referring to is the fact that we are an incredibly integrated post-globalization world and we right. no longer have democracies that are simply outlined around 19th century vision of nation-states. Well, the reason that Yasha is making this point is because the populist movement that we are living through right now is exactly a conscious rebellion against um, the worms being out of the cage or a a conscious attempt to (laughs) herd the worms back into the the can.
0: (laughs) By the way, I threw out that expression. I don't know if it's a real expression. So hopefully we're not belaboring uh, uh, an invented Phrase.
1: No, I, I mean, I mean, you hammer it in until it becomes. Uh, no, yeah, I've never heard it before, but I, I think there's a cat in the bag. Uh, there's a, um, there, there are several things that pop up of of the things, but I don't think worms and cans are. Right. Yeah, um, I don't think worms pair. really pop,
0: but let's just pretend for the sake of this uh, <laughs> analogy. That's
1: a horrific image if you think about it. The worms of democracy, the, the worms of diversity pop out of the can of democracy. <laughs> So when you're looking at what's going on, obviously, in Hungary with Viktor Orban and in Israel with some of the more religious nationalist movements that have risen to power over the past few years, and in a weird, perverted way with Trump as well, and I say weird perverted because the American nation is an experiment in Diversity and immigration and genocide from the get go. There is no, there is no uh, blood and soil nation that is Americans. The oldest part of the Waspy tribe will date themselves back to what the Mayflower. Not only are they not indigenous to the land, they are first of all not the majority of Americans at all, but also come on, like. A nation born 400 years ago, like, give me a break. This is not the sort of bond that those um, semi to more than semi uh, racist writers of the 19th century spring of nations were, um, you know, fantasizing. But I should say, like, not all of them were necessarily racist. In many ways, the rise of nationalism in Europe was actually a great liberalizing uh, movement and created more autonomy for smaller states against empire with more responsiveness to um, the democratic needs of a particular people as opposed to having uh, a regime that is controlled on a continental level imposed on different groups with different interests and different identities. So the nationalist experiment was, in many ways, something that we should support. And my dear uh, friend, with whom I have strong disagreements with, but I I would love to bring him on the podcast at some point, Gadi Taub, who is uh, a brilliant writer and a great scholar. And I have an interview with him, if anybody's interested in more context, that I wrote for the, the Huffington Post a while back. He Always emphasized in his writing the connection between democracy and nationalism, that you don't really have one without the other in a true sense. And I think that's a perspective that you do need to have in the back of your mind when we're talking about these things. Um, it also shows why America itself is such a weird case, because number one, it's from its constitution diverse and not really ethnically united, but also. It is the exact thing that nationalism came up against. It is an empire. It is a continent-sized behemoth rather than um, an experiment in in small states. I mean, obviously, that was the the original vision with the, what is it, 13 colonies that were supposed to be more autonomous, but this is certainly Mm -hmm. not the face of the U.S. today. And barring some, as envisioned by David French, massive secession of states, Mm -hmm. barring that, It it is much closer in many ways to the empires that uh, the nationalist movement of Europe was trying to uh, remedy or break apart. So the U.S. is a weird case, Mm -hmm. but we are recognizing that there is a movement around the world that responds to this instinct, the nationalist instinct, and to the idea that this is perhaps – a better solution than, than the, the, the global, overly gentrified, overly united, samified, samified version of cosmopolitan internationalism. And um, maybe we should look closer at the people within our own borders and kind of reassert the values of these borders and prioritize our, our own folks, strengthen our identity, sharpen our differences, and that idea appeals to many people because they do feel the the wishy-washiness of an international regime. The populist movement, the nationalist movement is saying we need tighter borders, both literal state borders, but also tighter cultural identitarian borders.
0: I'm going to move us, since we're low on time, but I'm going to move us from tight place-based <laughs> populist borders that I can't necessarily get behind towards local <clears throat> more character-filled <laughs> anti-internationalist architecture that I can get behind and I'm gonna <laughs> segue us to Vashan. That
1: was the smoothest segue on our show.
0: Wasn't it? Wasn't it? But the metaphor I no, think is true. actually pretty pretty good, even if the segue was poor. Oh,
1: no, I think you're right. And I think it's funny, this is this actually is is proving to be much more revealing to me at least than I expected in in having this conversation and tying these uh, individual talks that we had, I, I'm seeing through lines that I didn't, didn't even fully recognize until now. Talk but Michonne. my question
0: is, where are the populists demanding the better urbanism on their local level? Where are the, where are the teeny, teeny, teeny populists, the blockalists? It,
1: it's funny because cities are, um, kind of like the United States when you're talking big nations, cities offer a similar problem because on one hand, cities are have always been ground zero for diversity because people flock to cities from around the country, from around the world. People of different walks of life, of different ethnicities, of different cultures, and of different socioeconomic backgrounds. On the other hand, cities do have, or should have, and and we both agree, identities, a uniqueness that we see the value of protecting rather than let it be completely eroded. Although that's a different problem because you put your thumb on a scale and, and, and you lead to stagnation rather than the, the sort of dynamism and change inherent to cities. So, um, but, but the point is that we have at least the instinct, if, if not for the solution, then at least for the problem of we want to make sure that cities and, and especially neighborhoods and like the smaller units get to have stronger control over their character and fight against its erosion,
0: Right. And it's funny, it feels like the only way that Americans have been able to mobilize themselves in defense of character is through that kind of nimbyism. They've been able to say, like, no, stop. They've never been able to say, yes, this is what I want. Or maybe not never, that's too extreme. But at least in this current moment, it feels like, Americans don't know what to ask for Mm -hmm. when it comes to how do I have a built environment that reflects me and my neighborhood and my community. And I think that's what Vishan Chakrabarti, who's an urbanist architect, that's what we talked about towards the end of our conversation. There's a whole essentially capitalistic system set up that incentivizes our built environment to look banal and repetitive because there's economies of scale and it's easier for developers to just do what they've always done and get the factories pulling out what they've always made as opposed to local materials, local design techniques, local colors, whatever, and create something unique to a place. And that's the way that he and his uh, firm, Practice for Architecture and Urbanism, are trying to redefine beauty. They don't want to think about beauty as some sort of uh, platonic ideal. They want to think about it very practically in terms of what will make this thing, this building, feel like of the place it is in.
1: Beauty as something that's... Contextualized. It's the contextualization that defines the beauty, Correct. right? Um, it's fascinating because it really does go to the point of, of locality versus everywhereness, right? It's the it's the anywhere versus yeah. the somewheres um, model of, of sociology. It's funny how you have different ideas almost contradictory ideas um, from people, depending on the scale where you apply this question. Mm, The people who care so much about nationalism don't seem to be particularly prioritizing the the uniqueness of cities. I mean, the, the thing is that also that comes with some, baggage as well like on one hand you can say oh this is a beautiful unique working class neighborhood with some interesting maybe artistic scene and, and, and local culture and we don't want that to be eroded by the um by the affluent hipster horde that is gonna turn everything mm-hmm. into edison light bulbed cafe but on the other hand This is the same story of of segregation and there are a a lot of less tasteful or scrupulous reasons that people have wanted to keep um, others from moving in and from changing the local character. And we have a clear ethical distinction uh, intuitively that some of these concerns are legitimate and even potentially worthy, laudable, while others are uh, reprehensible.
0: Yeah, and I think Vashon brings up that we need to get away from this, what he called Jane Jacobs, Robert Moses, what you could also just call David Goliath concept of who is who always has the right in these conversations when it comes to what we should have in our cities and who's always wrong. And it's not so black and white as all of that. Um, but we are running out of time, Adam. Oh, we are, I'm about to get kicked out of this room. Should we, oh. should we end it on... L- that
1: let's let's give we didn't get to talk about christine i want to hear i want to hear what you love about christine
0: i just liked the diversity of topics that we talked about from panic porn to kind of trauma um and i also like that we got into the a little bit more personal stuff with like why or why not to be for marriage or like be anti or pro natalist um i like it when we draw those through lines more between our Personal lives mm. and the concepts that we're talking about on uncertain things, and I feel like we could stand to do that a little bit more. We do a better job in the newsletter, actually, than we do right. sometimes in the conversations, maybe because of the time crunch that we are under in the interviews.
1: Also, there's uh, d- depending on the guest, but there y- there are many guests you can wonder. I don't know right. how interesting it's going to be for you to hear my my background story now, but th- <laughs> that's a that's a. Right, I, right. I, I think there there must be um, some drinking game about how many times I I I. I, I, I do start with the identitarian as an Israeli.
0: Well, so just to really quickly end on yeah. things that we need sound effects for. So sure, as an Israeli, <laughs> Noam Chomsky. Cognitive dissonance. Gotta get we gotta get some some sort of sound effects for this. And this, anytime we, we mention the end of the world, <laughs> I think those are are. Sound effect worthy talking. The last points. one is not fair
1: because that's the the premise of the show. When people do write the history of um, podcasting um, in <laughs> 2010s and and early 20s. Maybe it will be you, again, writing the history of pods. Maybe it will be me. People who don't know Vanessa. Vanessa has written one of the earliest um, summations of the development and uh, um, podcast movement, like, what, 10 years ago? Things have changed since?
0: Seven years ago. Seven
1: years ago. The interesting thing to look at this burst of pandemic pods, to see there has to be a subgenre of uh, eschatological end of end times mm. uh, inspired podcast of, of sense making. Um, different, different creators have taken different approaches, obviously, but I, I, I am sure that this uh, fits into some uh, bigger umbrella.
0: Of uncertain pods. I think none has a better theme song than ours. Mm. That's another thing I realized listening back to all of the episodes. I, that, that song is still great. Every single, I just listen to it every single time.
1: I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I do also, I also think we have a better name than most. I think we have a good name. Well, um, w- with that listeners, Vanessa, um, my mom, who's in the other side of the room, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, this was an interesting year, year.
0: Let's have a better 2023, yeah. better, Everything. Be- be- <laughs> better, healthier, whatever better means to you,
1: happier, wealthier, um, all the good things.
0: Give us five stars as our end of the year Christmas present. Yes,
1: we we, we promised you that there are real guests coming up. You won't have to suffer our our self-indulgence. Uh, <laughs> Just us again. Uh, for, yeah. Although, if you do like our self-indulgence, then um, um, pay the Schmeckles in the Substack and you'll get some um, some more uh, of that.
0: Subscribe
1: to the, uh, the newsletter. Subscribe to the newsletter. dot uh, yeah. com. We'll see you next year. Stay safe. Share us with
0: your friends and enemies. <laughs>
1: Etc. etc.